This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Trying to get by Benning. Darnell Nurse left it in the corner. Gets up center. Perry scoops. Hey guys, just want to give a quick shout out to Steven before we get into the show today, as you guys will find out shortly. Steven ended up doing the first half of the show solo. Uh, big, big props to him. We were eventually going to, to have to cancel the show just due to some scheduling issues. But Steven ended up wanting to take the responsibility to do this show by himself that we, so we could still get an episode out. So just wanted to hop in here and, and give a quick shout out to Steven. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. It's a bit of a long one. And, uh, you know, we'll see you guys out there after uh, Monday night to discuss the, the next two games in the Ducks schedule. All right, enjoy the show. All right, everybody, how's it going? Uh, tonight is a very special episode of the Forever Mighty Podcast post game show. As you can see, it is me by myself. We're going to give this a try. The uh, I lost a bet with the guys. I said uh, uh, Derek Grant was going to have a hat trick tonight. Turns out he didn't. So I'm doing this by myself. Uh, so <laughs> as you can tell, this is going to be a little bit of a weird thing for us. We're going to see how it goes. Uh, and so we're just going to kind of work through some of it. Uh, the game is like, just kind of easy peasy. Um, I mean, look, the Ducks won 4-1. It's huge. You know, I think, uh, if you want to call it a 4-1 game, that's fine. If you want to call it a 2-1 game, that's just as fine. I don't think that part of it matters. Uh, I think what we saw was the Ducks get on the board early. Then they scored a second goal, which was huge. We never get to see that. And then, uh, you know, they kind of lost it in front of the uh, in front of the net, in front of John Gibson. One squeaks through. It is what it is. You know, I think uh, late in the game, towards the end, when they were really trying to pour it on, we heard Hazy say that, uh, you know, St. Louis was just trying to get it back to the point, get shots on net, and see what they could do. And I think, I think that's perfectly reasonable if you're St. Louis in that situation, you know, they've got good mobile defensemen. They've got guys who can shoot the puck and they got a lot of big bodies that have no problem crashing the net. You know, I mean, I know Tarasenko's a sniper, but he's built like a tank. He's just, you know, I, it's actually really funny because I think one of the things tonight that made me chuckle is there's a, him and uh, Jonesy kind of getting into it. And it's kind of great to just see how much bigger Jonesy is than Tarasenko, who is not a small man. Um, you know, but it, it makes a lot of sense, you know, to just get shots on net. You know, I think the Ducks right now aren't able to really establish themselves physically in front of the net on defense. I think they're getting a little bit better at that with offense. Um, 
But, you know, I think right now, defensively, um, you know, Hawk and Paw and Manson kind of do it. I think Hawk and Paw has his limitations. Manson's still coming back. And, you know, if we're honest, we're not 100% sure what Manson is right now. We're waiting to see as he comes back. Uh, Drysdale getting hurt. We might have to see a little bit sooner than not. But, I mean, even if, you know, that's not really your cup of tea as far as the style of hockey, you know, I think physicality can be an aesthetic thing as much as anything. You know, a guy like Campus Lindholm there still makes a big difference. He's got a, you know, he's got a big body. He's a smart guy. He's not, he's not physical in the same way that a guy like Josh Manson is or Hockenpah or, you know, Shea Weber or any of those guys. Uh, but what he's able to do is... Uh, you know, uses body position, uses size. He's not small, you know, he's like 6'2", 215, something like that. He's a big kid. Um, but, you know, he uses that well. And he's a smart player and he uses that to his advantage. And, you know, he's able to kind of create space in front of the net for the goaltenders. Um, you know, if you look on the one that Gibby gave up, he's just kind of sitting there and he's just kind of staring at the ground, hoping to find the puck and it just squeaks through. You know, it happens. You know, those are the sloppy goals uh that happened you know there's a reason you have all those dumb cliches you guys have heard me say that a uh, hundred times um you know get shots on net go to the dirty areas all that stuff means something and as much as it can feel a little overplayed or it can feel you know a little disingenuous at times given how well we can see skilled teams not necessarily always need to do that i think that doesn't remove the legitimacy of, of that type of play. You know, I think you've got guys like McKinnon and Rantman and Landeskog and, you know, Marchand, who's the opposite of all those guys physically, you know, they, they go to the front of the net when they're having trouble scoring. It's always nice, you know, to be able to just beat a goalie from 30 feet out with a wrist shot. Like everybody wants to do that. That's awesome. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not always possible. And if, if you're just waiting for perfect opportunities, you're going to screw yourself. You know, there was a quote that came out uh, today from Bruins practice where Bruce Cassidy's yelling at his guys, stop looking for plays that aren't there. Um, stop trying to make, you know, fancy passes, get shots on net and go to the net. And look, that's Boston. And as much as they may be struggling at the standings right now, I don't think anybody doesn't think they have the horses to make a deep run if they make it in. You know, I think right now they're in fourth place and it's a little contested. but if they get in, I don't think anybody wants to play them. I think um, Boston's a really good team. They have the horses. They can, they're physical. They're fast. They're skilled. They've got David Basternak, who's a human cheat code. And it was apparently the rest of his game's filling out great. So that's a scary thought. Um, you know, so I think what you're looking at is it, it's just easy to understand why good teams at, in, in major moments can try to reduce what they're doing, really try to cut it down and get back to basics. I think that stuff matters. Um, you know, and I think tonight, in a lot of ways, we did kind of see that from Anaheim. You know, I don't think uh, either of the two goals were, you know, necessarily super spectacular. Um, you know, I think the Jones goal was great, but he went to the front of the net. There was a battle in the corner, puck pops out, and now he's... Uh, you know, he's taken it to the net. He's got good hands, you know, as much as we've lamented over the last year and a half or so that he's not necessarily going to be an elite finisher. I think at the end of the day, we all have to admit he's got good skill and it's not 
first line high end skill like maybe we had hoped when they drafted him uh you know 400 years ago or whatever but he's a skilled player there's a reason that he was taken in the first round there's reason that he has found success at every level that he's played and you see a nice little bit of it um you know on that play he's got a little bit of hands he beats the goaltender but more than anything he's just in the right place at the right time and he capitalized it uh there it is Dave helping me out a little bit. I appreciate it. Uh, I couldn't remember the first goal to save my life, but it was uh, Sam Steele. And what does Sam Steele do? Goes to the front of the net, engages in a puck battle. And now Silverberg has a free moment. He picks his head up, takes a shot on net, and it seems like it goes off of Steele's toe and it beats Biddington and it's in. It's a one nothing game now. I don't think anybody's drawing that up in the dirt. You know what I mean? That's just the way it goes. And when you have a team like Anaheim that are so high in talent and finishing deficient, those kinds of things, those repeatable things, the things that you can do every night, no matter who you're playing and no matter who you are, those are the things that can give you the opportunity to win games. And that's what we saw tonight. You know, I think it'll be interesting to see how Sam Steele responds to getting on the board. Uh, you know, he's had a little bit of a rough go of it and, the 11-7 setup's a little weird in a lot of ways right now. Um, but he made the most of an opportunity. And at the end of the day, that's what that's what he needs to do. Uh, you know, I think as much as I, I want to be patient uh, with some of these kids, um, I think there also is a part of us that we we do need to start to begin to temper our expectations a little bit. And I would rather be pleasantly surprised than consistently disappointed because i am asking for more players than maybe they're able to give at this level and i don't think that's you know i don't think that's unfair to them or i i don't think it's ridiculous to say maybe take a chill pill um you know so sam still gets on the board he gets a nice little goal um one nothing, and you know we see him kind of start to get ragdolled a little bit. You know, I think St. Louis did a really good job more than a few times of putting the pressure on and really making Anaheim have to make some big plays. I think John Gibson looked great tonight. I, you know, there's been so much hand wringing over goaltenders. I think these uh, these last few weeks, and understandably so in some sense, I get that they haven't looked great. But, but I really do think at a certain point, we all need to remember that we have far more evidence of these two guys being good NHL players than we do of the rest of the team. So when they're struggling, I think there's every reason to look at what's, what's happening in front of them and start to question how much of it is their fault and how much of it is them being given so much to do that it's hard. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> they're just kind of keeping trying to keep their finger in the dam right now. It just doesn't always work. Um, you know, a few years ago, I think everybody, myself included, got super hyped up on Gibby because he was incredible. You know, he had the kind of season for the first half of the season that gets you into the heart conversation as much as none of us thought he was going to win it. And as much as last year, Hellebuck, I think, even making the podium is is uh a remarkable thing given the way the voters have traditionally treated the position in regards to the MVP award. We saw the kind of play from John Gibson that gets you into that conversation. And then the wheels fell off the wagon and he wasn't able to be Dominic Hashik for 80 games. And so 
the team in front of him couldn't give him any help. And so the things fell off and it feels like it's just kind of been a weird situation since then of trying to see if he can get back to that form that, you know, that we've all seen him have. Um, and tonight I think was a big step in the right direction for a lot of us thinking, you know, Gibby is still capable of being an incredible goaltender, you know, that, on the back windmill, kick it in the air, save, you know, that's one of those things. You do. What are you doing? Why, what, what, in what world was that, you know, the save you decided to make? But at the end of the night, it's paid to keep the puck out of the net. So as long as it stays out, who gives a shit? Plus, it's more fun that way. Goalies aren't fun anymore. You know, they used to be a blast. That's the thing that made Hashik so special. And to be honest, even a guy like Patrick Waugh, who, you know, one of the great things about him was that big, over-exaggerated Statue of Liberty, which made it all the better when, you know, it fell out of it, it fell out of his glove in Detroit and he got ran off the ice like that, you know, all that stuff. But it's nice to see Gibby play well again. And we've had questions about Ryan Miller a little bit this year, and we'll get a little bit later into the athletic article. Um, you know, his his stats have gone down year over year, which I think is somewhat to expect for an aging goaltender who was a workhorse for the majority of his career in Buffalo. Like Ryan Miller was incredible in Buffalo. He was one of the biggest reasons that team was able to have so much success for such a decent period of time. And I, and I, I know that feels a little weird to say that given what we understand and appreciate of him. But, you know, I, if I remember right in 07, the Senators and the Sabres were really the two ones that you were looking at like, yeah, this, this is going to be kind of what it is. Um, you know, that Buffalo team that year was really good and they lost to the Senators and then we kicked the Senators ass and now all of us get to be excited about having won a cup one time 15 years ago, but it's fine. Who cares? It's enjoyable. Um, you know, so I just think, you know, it got mentioned in the chat, you know, the, the goal the other night where, he goes to glove it up and it kind of pops out on him and the guy skates in and pops it in. Look, I'm not going to make excuses for what Ryan Miller did. He flubbed it. It happens. Every goalie flubs it. Nobody is beyond it. The problem is, is he hasn't at times looked super, hasn't at times looked super great this year. So there are even more questions to be asked. Like, Oh, is this the sign of the end? And you know, is this the shooting star that signals the dinosaurs are dying and all that crap? And, I just think it's a little ridiculous. I mean, if you look at the defensemen on that play, they both skate almost perfectly like Blue Angels. It's Fowler and Hockenbach, I think. And they turn off, and it pops out. And so one of the things that makes team sports great is when you make a mistake, your teammates can help you, and they can help you adapt or, or, or overcome your mistakes. And he, he was by himself on an island, you know, there's no reason for Fowler and Hawkinpaw to both skate away from him in that moment. Protect the net, take space off, call it. Just don't overthink it. But they both began to peel off to turn up like Brian Miller was going to play on the puck and start the break the other way. It's not worth it. Cover the puck. Protect the goalie. That's all you need to do. You know, and I, and I think this is the kind of stuff that, you know, we saw a little bit tonight with why St. Louis starts trying to get bombs on net. At the end of the day, Anaheim can't protect the front of their own net. So why not? See if you can get some traffic. That's how you got the first goal by. Why wouldn't you keep trying to do that? You know? Um, uh, <laughs> I apologize to everybody. It's such a little bit of a weird thing. It's usually I get to let Eddie and Pat do all the work, and I'm just kind of sitting here, you know, looking at the chat and seeing how everybody's doing, 
trying to pretend like I know what I'm talking about. It's, it's a good time. I really appreciate everybody for sticking it out and uh, doing this with us tonight. I really do. Um, you know, I think a couple of things to talk about, especially given the whole Tim Peel thing, I think is the lack of an instigator. I'm very smart, guys. The lack of an instigator call on Braden Shen tonight. And I think for Anaheim fans, that was really frustrating to see that uh, after having Getsy get the two, five, and 10 the other night for doing the same thing. And I, I hope that we take away the right lesson uh, from what happened tonight versus what happened the other night, which is tonight got it right. That's not supposed to be a two and a 10 tacked on. That's two guys having a fight after a big hit. Look, if you want to have the conversation about do or don't hit after clean hits, that's fine. I, I'm not really that excited to have that conversation because I think uh, unless you're the guy who got hit or the guy who's getting in the fight, I don't really think you have enough skin in the game to have an opinion. I know, you know, I, I think it's always nice to have people stick up for you. I think it's always nice when, uh, you know, your teammates, you know, your teammates are there. Good, bad, or indifferent. At the end of the day, you're going to spend 82 games with these guys. You're going to spend the better part of the year feeling like shit with these guys and i think knowing that they're going to have your back is huge i think the call tonight was correct that shouldn't be an instigator gibby got it the other night it's the way it goes or gets he got it the other night it's the way it goes and uh you know that's the thing about hockey that's the thing about sports that's the thing about officials they're gonna be wrong uh it happens and i i think the thing with Tim Peel the other night gave everybody an opportunity to be so excited about pointing out how bad the referees are and how unfair it is and how they're trying to gain manage. You know, look, I was listening to Pucks through the night. Sean McIndoe said it perfectly. It's all game management, calling and not calling a game, calling it to try to take some of the air out of the balloon a little bit when it starts to get a little heated. That's all game management. And I think so many of us agree that that's the kind of stuff we want. We want them to do that. We want the refs to not impact the outcome of the game, but we want them to have an appreciation for the temperature of the game. You know, there's some games that get chippy early and the refs are like, all right, we're going to see where this goes. And sometimes middle of the second, beginning of the, or end of the first, they start, you know, throwing guys out and start setting some examples. Look, you can't keep this. I gave you guys the opportunity, but uh, you, you know, this isn't going to fly. Other nights, you see guys get into it real early, and they both go to the box, and that's the ref saying, look, I'm not dealing with this tonight. You guys want to play hockey? We can play hockey. And, and I think that's totally fair. I think that's what we want the refs to do. They're, they're there to officiate. They're there to oversee it. And whether they do or don't do something, it's going to affect the outcome of the game. And we need to become more comfortable with the type of impact that refs can have on the game. And I think we need to appreciate that it's, excuse me, it's never going away. As long as we have refs, as long as there are rules that lead to penalties, um, these things are going to happen. Refs are going to miss things. Refs are going to have a different interpretation of things. You know, and I, I think in a lot of ways, Tim Peel is the easy guy to be mad at because we can all think of something he's done wrong. But he's far from the only person to do this. This is not a new take, but I wasn't on the other night, so I didn't get to talk about it. But we've heard everybody say it. Tim Peel didn't get fired for doing something wrong. He got fired for getting caught. 
And that's a huge difference. And if he wasn't going to retire at the end of this year, it's hard to think that this is what it is. You know, it's so, it seems almost guaranteed that maybe they sit him for the rest of the year and they go, you know, we're going to talk to him and we're going to take him out of play for right now because we don't want fans or players or coaches to feel that the integrity of the game may be compromised. We have all the faith in the world in our referees and we're going to address this internally and we expect him to be, you know, refing at the start of next season. If he's not retiring, that's what happens. The NHL isn't going to push their own guys under the bus. That's just, there's nothing to gain from it. But Tim Peel, he's at the end of his career. So what they do to do is, you know, you're grounded. Don't come out of your room until company leaves. Okay, that's what it is. But none of that addresses what the real issue is, which is every fan can be mad at a call that wasn't made, mad at a call that was made, mad at the calls from four games ago and how unfair it is when they don't go the same way, ignoring the part of this that is, these are referees. They're all individual people. And if we can't appreciate that, we're setting ourselves up to get played. Um, you know, I think the Drysdale hit tonight is a perfect example of that. I don't think that hit was bad. I think he lost an edge and he fell and he saw a large human being skating at him. And so he tried to get out of it, but he had already lost his edge. So now what he ends up is in a weird position with both of his legs going out in opposite directions like he's Bambi. And then that dude is still coming and he bowls him over and he hits his head on the board. And now he's in the concussion protocol. You hope he's okay. But nobody really did anything wrong. And the moment the refs let that kind of fracas, kerfuffle happen on the other side of the ice, you know, and Kevin Shattenkirk is in there doing all the, uh, what do they say, the how do you do's to all of his old teammates. You know, I think uh, that's a pretty straightforward tone. You add that to the non-call on Braden Shen, again, the correct call. And what you have is, you have coaches, uh, you have referees who are trying to do what they can to have the game kind of go along. They're trying to give these guys a little bit of space. Uh, you know, uh, maybe if you wanted to, you could call them for charging, but I don't think that would have been appropriate. I don't really know that his feet were moving at a degree to which it became dangerous. He skated at the guy with the puck to make a hit. You know, that that's what he's supposed to do. That's his role, you know. D. LaRose, he's what, a fourth line guy? You know, maybe a third line guy? Hey, man, go out there, you know, run into people, mess stuff up, see what happens. Great. Thank you so much. And it went bad. And you hate to see it because Jamie Drysdale's been great. We've all been really excited to see him play. You know, it's a couple of people have said it in the chat. He, he's transformed the power play. If nothing else, I think. You know, when Trevor Zegers came up, I really was kind of laughing and wondering if one player on their own is a top 10 power play. Because he just looks so dynamic. He looks so creative. He stands out so much for the way that he sees and thinks the game. That he looks leaps and bounds more incredible than you could even think, knowing what his skill level is. Because the context around him is terrible. 
you know, guys are standing still, guys aren't moving, guards aren't trying to create passing lanes. It's just a lot of four guys standing around and one guy waiting for one of them to do something different. Then Jamie Drysdale comes up. And now you've got two guys who can pass the puck to each other, who can move around. You've got a lefty and a righty. You've got a defenseman and a playmaker. You know what I mean? It's remarkable just to see the way that these two guys can completely transform the power play. And, you know, uh, I said this after the game or during the game the other night. I think at, at the point right now, as far as the power play is concerned, I think you have to look at those two guys and two two groups of three. And the question needs to be, what are the two groups of three players that we can put together to pair with Zegris and Dreesdale and see how it goes? They're young. They're 20 and, what, 18? Let them go, man. Let them play two minutes on the power play. Dallas Akins loves to sit them down for no real reason anyways. Let, might as well put them out there. Let them go crazy on the power play and give them a shift off to get their feet and their win back. That's awesome. We should be giving these two the keys to the car, the keys to the city. Like, it should just be here. Please take this. We need you to do something with it. And if you don't, no one else is going to. And it sucks, right? I think it's unfair in a lot of ways to tell a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old, you're the saviors. Like, you're the guys. But damn, they look it, don't they? They look real good. You know, going into the draft this year and everything you hear about Dreesdale, it's his skating, his skating, his skating. Yeah, man, they weren't kidding. His skating is incredible. He, his ability to move around the ice, his ability to beat guys to spots on the ice because he's just smarter and better skating than they are. It doesn't matter that he's 18. It, he's incredibly talented and he's very thoughtful and he's not a big dude and he has played against bigger dudes his entire life i assure you that and so what he did is he figured out how to make what he's good at work for him and that's awesome because that's what you want that is what sets great players apart from good players and you know cart before the horse by a thousand miles i don't want to discount that but i, I do think you can see why Bob Murray and the Ducks franchise and all the people who don't even care about the Ducks were so excited about these two kids coming into the draft each year. You know, I, I don't know how many of us thought we were going to get Zegers at nine, but that was huge. And then you could get Jamie Dreesdale at six the next year. And now you're like, all right, man, I, I, I can see the parts of this team that are going to be the basis for success moving forward. You know, and I think the question is, how do the rest of the guys fit? Some of the older guys, some of the younger guys. You know, there's a lot of questions right now with Sam Steele. There's a lot of questions with Jacob Larson. You know, Troy Terry seems to be getting a lot better. He seems to be more comfortable. He seems to be improving. But I don't know that it's as much as it's not fair to hold. As much as it's not fair to say when he's not playing well that he hasn't played a ton, it's equally important to do that when he is playing well and to understand where he's at in his career. And and hopefully what we're seeing now is what we're going to get. And that is really encouraging because what you see are a good two-way winger 
who can make plays for other people. I, I think, you know, seeing how well he has played with Zegras gives you so much insight to the type of player and type of role that he fills. He doesn't have to be the primary creator. He shouldn't be. He should be the second option. He should be the guy that can take pressure off of your high-end playmakers at both ends of the ice and allow them to do the things that make them special. And that's what we're seeing. Rico's a workhorse, man. Like, wave, not wave, whatever. Bad contract, doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. Dave's making me answer a question. and Zegris isn't getting sent back down, guys. I, I, man, I will tell you this right now. If he gets sent back down, I think there is every reason to have even more questions about this organization uh, than we already do. I, I, I think that if I'm the Samuelis and I see, you know, Elliot Friedman tweet out that Zegris and Drysdale get sent back down. Uh, I'm talking to HR immediately. And I, how do I fire him? Can I just fire him to fire him? Because this is a very stupid thing to do. So as long as I can fire him for cause, he's gone. And, and that's what matters. But I don't think he's going to do that because if nothing else, Bob Murray still wants this job. And whether we do or don't think he's going to get it, um, you know, whether or not we do or think he's going to be the guy going forward, his best bet right now is to give Dreesdale and Zeggers as much room to go as possible and just let them do it and just be able at the end of the year to go, look, some of the young guys weren't where we want. Some of the older guys seem to have fallen off a little faster than I thought, but look at these two, and I'm going to get a third one. This is incredible. Plus, I've got Tracy, I've got Perot, I've got Colangelo. I've got guys in the pipeline that I can look to and say, maybe they can fix some of the issues that we're having as far as being able to put the puck in the back of the net. Hard to say, but that's Bob Murray's best shot <laughs> at having this job next year is letting these two just ball out and being able to go, look, these are the guys I picked. They're great. I, I got to find them some help. And I think we have a lot of those pieces. Lundestrom looks good. Max Jones has come along. Max Comtroll looks great. You know, uh, you know, I think tonight was a wonderful thing to see with Max Comtroll. He's running around. He's, he's aggressive on the forecheck. You know, I, there are legitimate questions about his defense. I, I, I think those are very real and they're going to matter as he gets farther along in his career, if he can address them, you know, systemically as far as being in systems that'll allow him to play well and do little things to minimize the impact of his lack of defenses. But the offense is there, you know, he's just a difference maker right now on that end. There's always the risk that it's a flash in the pan. It's a one year thing. It's a, mediocre player on a terrible team so he looks like a superstar like these are all very real possibilities i'm not trying to bring anybody down i'm not trying to make this as depressing as i can without eddie around but that's true and we have to accept that these are the kind of things that can happen and i think right now what we're looking at is he's got a chance to be top line winger top six winger no questions asked put up goals put up points 
be an aggressive physical presence in the other team's blue, uh, the other team's paint on the power play at even strength, whatever. I don't want to see him near a penalty kill ever, ever. No, thank you. But if he can be this guy offensively going forward and you give him, because here's the other thing. I don't think he's played very much with Zegerson at all. You give a guy like that, a straight line skater who can finish, who uses his size well, who can leverage his ability and his size to create scoring opportunities. You put him with a playmaker? Shit, that's the game right there, man. That's that these are the kinds of chemistry things and the kind of fit things that matter. If we're gonna put Zegers at center, I'm telling you right now, I wanna see Zegers and Terry with Jones, and I wanna see him with Comfort. Because both of those guys are different versions of the perfect third winger or third forward, second winger for those other two guys. They're going to get in there. They're going to get the puck. They're going to be physical. And they're going to go to the front of the net. They're going to take up space, and they're going to be big, which is awesome when you have two guys like Troy Terry and like Trevor Zegers who can make plays. And that's that's the thing I think we all have to be excited about. You know, with the, the draft, sorry, the trade, line, trade deadline coming up, the expansion draft, the entry draft after that, we're going to have plenty of times to be upset. We're going to have plenty of time to ask serious questions about what this franchise is doing, who this franchise thinks it is, what it wants to be. But for now, there is every reason to think the future isn't as dark as maybe we thought it might be coming into the year. You know, if we're a few years from now and you've got Lundestrom, Terry, Jones, Comtois, Perot, and Zegers, uh, you know, if that's kind of where your top six is, you're in a good spot. That, there are worse groups of six to carry forward. It's going to take substantial steps forward from each of them uh, to make that viable at a contending level. But the promise is there. We have a lot of reasons to be excited. And I honestly didn't think that was going to be where we were when the season started. I really just expected this whole season to be a dashboard album. We were just going to sit here and we were going to be sad. You know, just like the emo kids in South Park. We were just going to sit here writing poetry, being sad, smoking cigarettes. You know, and just not knowing what to do. But look, as much as we can bitch about some of the coaching decisions, as much as we can bitch about some of the personnel decisions, there is a, a, a nucleus here going forward of a team that we can see getting back into the playoffs, of a team that we can be excited to root for. Not all good teams are fun. And this team has the potential to be both of those things, good and fun. And that rocks. That's just that's just great. That's the best of both worlds. So, you know, like I said, you know, they're they're tied for second worst in the league by points and point percentage and games played with Detroit. Detroit has one more regulation win than we do. But, you know, I don't think we're going to beat Buffalo. I, I don't think anybody thinks they're going to be Buffalo. And I think that's how you wind up putting yourself in a position to become Buffalo. 
but I'm not in charge. So I'm just going to sit here and be a little excited for five minutes because Eddie's a smart guy. Eddie tells me about Nick Perot. He's like, kid's got a shot. He's special as far as being able to shoot the puck. The rest of his game's going to have to catch up, but he's got a chance to be a special finisher in this league. Maybe not Patrick Liney special, but 30, 35 goals. If, we get, if Jacob Perot, production-wise, is Bobby Ryan, and I let <laughs> you have the misfortune of following me on Twitter or listening to me here. I shit on Bobby Ryan all the time. I do think he's a little overhyped. And I 100% do think so much of that is because he was taken after Sidney Crosby, which just isn't his fault. But <laughs> if Jacob Perot, our second first round pick in a Draft we already got Dreesdale in? Yeah, that's right. Sorry, my brain catching up. If that's what he is, huge. That's huge. That's the kind of stuff that is gives you the opportunity to get out of a rebuild, to get out of the tank, to get out of the NHL standings basement. I have always been. Uh, vehemently pro-tank. I, I just think the way that the league is set up, I think the way that the lottery is set up, and the way in which we know elite talent doesn't move very often in this league, uh, unless they play for Peter Chiarelli, or they're weird and like museums. Other than that, those guys don't move. So your best shot of getting good players is at the top of the draft. And as much as we all want to say, oh, well, Pavel Datsuk went in the seventh, and Mark Stone was a seventh, and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, that's true, and that's all awesome. You know, Jonas Hiller was undrafted. But the benefit of having early picks is you have all the opportunities to pick those guys. The problem <laughs> isn't that you have to get those guys late. It's you have to find those guys. Because I assure you, everything that we know about Mark Stone right now that makes him special, you could have seen it. I don't know what the book was on him. I don't know why a guy who's probably the best two-way forward in the league, I don't know why he fell that far. But that's a systemic failure on the league. <laughs> that's not a we can't trade seventh round picks and they're very different and it's important uh it's important to remember that it's important to keep that kind of perspective and so hopefully i hope we can do that but if jacob perot is bobby ryan in three years we're sitting here very different conversation you know three years from now maybe we still have fowler and Henrique and Silverberg and their terrible, no good, very bad contracts on the book. Yeah, that happens, man. It, it does. But hitting those guys when we can. And, and you know, I, I just think putting yourself in a position to succeed and putting your players in a position to succeed is important. And getting hits late in draft is a big deal. And it is crucial to 
successful rebuilds, to successful franchises. You know, Tom Brady and all that crap, you know. Tom Brady can walk off the Golden Gate Bridge for all I care, but the fact of the matter is he was like a late-round pick, and he's the greatest quarterback of all time. So what are you supposed to do? I don't know. <laughs> but I, I just – it's funny, man. I just think there is so many different things about what this team is right now, about who's on the roster, about who's in charge that we can go back and forth from good and bad. We can, you know, just pong it out and just, oh, this sucks. Oh, that's not bad. Oh, this sucks. Oh, that's not bad. And we can do that all day. And that's fine. And it's fine. Who cares? At the end of the day, we're going to be in the lottery. Hopefully we win. Hopefully we get, by the way, we need to have a conversation about this because I have talked to more than a few of you and none of you told me Owen Power was six foot six. As I have said a thousand times, I have Brian Burkburn. I love tall people. They are beautiful. Nobody ever told me Owen Power was a six foot six mobile defense. Are, are you kidding me? If Owen Power is a poor man's Chris Pronger, a, a poor man's Dougie Hamilton, sign me up. Are you kidding me? Let's go. That's fucking awesome. That's the fun stuff. We got a shot this year at getting another good pick and putting a couple of these high lottery picks together and creating the foundation for a good team going forward. And it's going to take a lot of little things along the way going right and more than a few not going wrong. But that's how it always is. That's part of building a team. That's part of building a you know successful franchise is getting good luck and as much as nobody wants to admit it it's very important you know steve eiserman calls up and he goes uh hey trade me up two spots why just because okay he takes Braden point in third round he just says i would very much like to trade spots with you would you be so kind the other guy on the phone goes Sure, why not? And he takes Brady Point. And we all see who Brady Point is. It's luck. There's no reason the guy who picked up that phone should have said yes. <laughs> There's every reason to think he should have been like, who are you going to take? Because if it's Brady Point, that's my guy and that's what I'm taking. But it didn't. And that's a little bit of luck. And that rocks. So, you know. I think we've gone all over the place today. I really appreciate everybody kind of being along for their idea. I'm going to bring up some of our uh, questions that we got on Twitter earlier. Uh, and we're going to go from there. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff. And it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yeah. Oh, what's up, man? Oh, yeah. I, I get so nervous because I don't know who can sit. There he is. This is my boy. <laughs> all right. I'm making you take over and ask questions, man. I got to take a drink. My throat is killing I, me. I, got, I had to hop in here. 
because uh, I, I do have a couple questions I wanted to bring back. And I got I to gotta go throw some props out here um, first to, to Stephen for, for covering the show today. Just rocking it out solo. Uh, so kudos to, to you for covering it today. It was great. Damn, <laughs> it was not a punishment. Sense. It was not a punishment. It was. Uh, Don't believe them. They. This is hazing. It's because yeah. I'm the guy. It's uh yeah. It's hazing, and yet mm. somehow none of us have gone through it yet. So Pat now apparently <laughs> wants to do a solo show. So this might be uh, this might be the the tradition moving forward. But uh, I finally got some some peace and quiet uh, at my house here, so I can hop in hop in and, and answer some of the fan questions that we have because we are so graciously sent so many uh, earlier in the night. And uh, the the chat's hating me right now. <laughs> They're telling <laughs> me to get lost. They're telling me to get lost. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming in and saving me like the cavalry, man. I really do. <laughs> saving what? You you were killing it. Don't worry. But uh, all right, let's go here. We had a question from uh, Frank on Twitter. He said, "Could we see front office changes before or after the trade deadline?" That. Uh, that, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think it's that bad, right? You know, if we were in a a Sabers fifteen game losing streak, maybe, right? But there's no, right. there's no way. You know, this is a four one win in the, in, you know, to to the coaching staff and Bob Murray right now. Essentially, it's a two one win, two empty net goals. It was a lot closer and a lot tighter than than it looks on the final score line now. But uh, yeah, there, there's definitely nothing before uh, the trade deadline, maybe. Maybe after, but when you when you think you get past the trade deadline, there's what ten, fifteen games left in the regular season, twenty at most. Um, there's there's no point, right? You know, unless they rattled off, like I said, ten or fifteen losses in a row, maybe you make that decision. But at that point, you're literally a handful of games away from from the end of the regular season. I think we've said pretty firmly over the last couple of shows is if any of these happen, any of these these front office moves, it's got to be an off season decision right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, I, I let me say this. If the Samuelis have really kind of lost faith in Bob Murray, then the question becomes, do we fire him now or do we wait till the end of the season? And I think the big part of that is, is do you, what is it, Mark Madden is the, yeah, the Mark guy Madden. who's the associate GM, head of scouting? Yep. If you think he's a viable candidate, and you're going to fire Bob Murray already, I, I think it's a great idea. Because uh, what are we, about, what, 20 days out right now from the trade deadline? Yeah, um, yeah, April 14th, I think. 12th? Or, yeah, yeah, around then, yeah. yeah. You know, so for me, I think, you know, if, if you think Mark Madden is a viable candidate and you want to see what he's got, I think he, given his, uh, his scouting, given the talent that he has been a part of bringing into this organization, I think he's earned the opportunity to be given the reins for the last, you know, third of the season, give him a trade deadline, see what he can do. But at this point, I don't think that's where they are. If that's where they were, I think they would have fired him a long time ago. You know, I think there was a lot of reasons earlier in the season to fire him that they're the same now. You know, I don't think they're worse. I think they're the same. And if you didn't do it then and you're doing it now, that's fine. But you have to have a legitimate reason. And we just felt like it isn't great. And given what we've seen from the Samuelis throughout their tenure as owners, 
we don't have any reason to think they're going to behave that way. So yeah, I I think my only concern is 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 this season enough, right? Like when we're trying to sit here and say, okay, what's enough to get them fired at this point? Okay, if they're you know to get fired mid season, it would be a, a ridiculous losing streak or or just something. You know, that that's pretty much it. It's the only thing I can really think of right now that would would get them fired mid season. Is the ownership going to look at this season and be like, okay, this is the final straw? Especially when Bob Murray only has one year left on his contract. I, I think that's what I'm mostly worried about. Is that at the end of the day, they're going to sit back and say, all right, you know what? We saw some progress. We want you to come back next year. And you know, up until you mentioned it, um, I think it was a few podcasts ago. I was under the assumption that his contract was expiring at the end of this season. I don't know how we, we messed that up at, at any point there, but uh, now knowing that he is coming back for another year, I think that's my main worry this offseason is that, you know, if a change is going to happen, it's in the offseason, but are mm-hmm. we actually going to see the change that I think we all expect is going to happen? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the question. And that's, that's you know, like I said, I think, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this, me and you, um, you know, I think the most likely thing is he gets bumped up, right? They do the Dale Talon in Florida thing. They kick him upstairs and they go, he's going to be here to oversee these kinds of things and he's going to be a valuable resource to us, but we want to bring in new people. It's time, you know, Bob Murray's had a great run and now it's important for us as we transition cores on the ice, we need to begin to transition cores in the front office. I think that is the most likely outcome. I am scared. <laughs> to be frank, that it's not going to happen till after the expansion draft, because I do think that would be a problem. I think if you're going to bring somebody in, they need to be given every opportunity to affect change on this roster. But, you know, Samuel is patient. They're stable. They're very hands-off. They want this team to do well, and they don't want to be the reason that it's not. And that is commendable, but there is a point at which the guy who writes the checks has to be the one to make decisions yeah yeah i i think we're all kind of waiting on pins and needles right now because really the you know the the main thing a lot of people are looking forward to obviously is another top draft pick but outside of that i think the main thing everybody's waiting for this year is a change if you know not just to the general manager but now it's kind of starting to be a you know just a complete clean sweep of, of management with coaching staff and the general manager and Bob Murray right now. So now we're all kind of waiting and seeing if that's going to happen and, and if that's a possibility. And I think it all does kind of start with a new GM because if a new GM comes in that, you know, a decision will be made on, uh, on the coaching staff and whether that's, you know, we'll give you a season uh, Dallas and we'll, we'll kind of see what we have in you and I'll, and I'll make my own judgment as uh, you know, in the new direction of the organization or the new GM just comes in and says, Hey, you know what? You're not my guy. I want to bring in my own guy. And then they, they bring in a completely new coach. So there's a, there's a few different ways they could go about it. Yeah. I think the other thing I was thinking about this today, I think one of the things that's important to remember, uh, the Samuelis wanted Dallas Akins to be the head coach. And there was some talk uh, before he was officially hired that Murray wasn't necessarily sold and that the Samuelis were and that it was ultimately going to come down to them saying Dallas is our guy. We put him in San Diego so he could earn this opportunity and he has earned it. I do think that if a new GM comes in, I, I don't 
I would not be surprised for the Samuelis to say, give Akins a shot. Do not fire him. We would like to see if under different leadership, under different guidance, with a different approach to roster building, if he can have the success that we saw him have in San Diego. And again, when you're the guy who cuts the check, you get to say things like that. Yeah. And so I do I do think that would be reasonable. And if you're the new GM, why do you want to fire the coach right away? You know, they you know, you hear people talk about it all the time as far as playing cards. You know, that's that's one you got and you can only fire a coach the first time once, you know. Yeah. Unless you have your guy, right? Like that's the only way. I think right, if you're that's fair, if sure. you're coming in as a new GM and you you know whether it's the team you're coming from or you just know a guy who's available and you have a good relationship with that guy and and that's you know your guy that you want to bring in. I think that's the only you know circumstance we would see that happen. Um, I can't imagine you know one of the first things a new GM wants to do when coming into the team is also add finding a new head coach. Uh, to your your kind of list of tasks and duties, especially you know taking in a lot of this for the first time, especially if this is you know a guy who doesn't have any um, you know history as a as a general manager in the league. If it's an AGM, like if Eric Tulski comes in and takes over the job, right? I think the last thing you want to do is say, oh nope, you've now I've got to find a head coach as well as you know prepare for free agency potentially, um, you know and, and you know start actually learning my staff and getting prepped for the twenty twenty two draft. It would be not the best thing to kind of add that to your plate. So yeah, unless a unless a new GM comes in and has, you know, his guy, I don't necessarily think uh, we see Dallas Aikens hit the door uh, in this offseason. Unless the unless ownership wants to do a clean sweep. I think that that's the only other circumstance right there. Yeah. Um I, I think it's important just to point out uh, that every day that there is a game and we do one of these shows and we have a chat, Nat wakes up and chooses violence <laughs> in the chat. And I respect him for it. Uh, <laughs> but he seems intent on trolling everyone all the time. And it is something I respect. So I just want to say that because he's trying to get Bomber extended right now. And I a hundred percent know that is not a thing he wants. It's a okay, commitment to the role at this point for <laughs> sure. Um, all right, let's move, Everybody's got one. let's move into some of the other questions. Cause we had a, a bunch on, on Twitter as well. Dave is in the chat here, just desperate for us to, uh, to ask his question about the district D five jerseys and how you would feel if, uh, the ducks were to wear those for a game this year, or if Adidas was to, um, kind of make them and, and remake them into a, to an actual kind of third Jersey. Would you like to see that happen? Uh, oh, man. Uh, it feels and like we're talking, very we're talking minor hockey Ducks. or AHL yeah, the hockey. Conway, the Charlie Conway jerseys, right? The green ones yeah. with the very ugly. Yeah, very, color. very ugly yeah. cartoon duck Absolutely on it, yes. Not. No, I think they should be sold in the team store. I think fans should wear them if they like them because they're fun. And, you know, it, I, people always go like Mickey Mouse franchise and all that crap. But, like, honestly, like, who cares, man? They made a movie. The movie was successful. They put a team in Anaheim, and now I get to be miserable for the rest of my life watching this stupid team make me sad. Like, it's great. I love it. I'm so happy that this is where we are. Um, but I don't, you know, if they wear them for a game, it's fine. You know. <laughs> but God, if they enter the actual rotation, I think I'd lose my mind. They're aggressively ugly. Yes. The full kit, too, is... Oh, no. It's just as bad. 
uh, it's not like it tones it down a bit. It's it's a full on kind of very dark, vomity green that uh, that they throw at you with the jersey. And I don't hate them. I mean, they're nice for the movie, but I think if you're putting a full kit on the ice, uh, like I said, it feels like very minor league AHL hockey where you have like theme mm-hmm. nights where you have like superhero night or throwback night or whatever and you you get these kind of you know weird uh, and wacky jerseys it would kind of feel a bit like that and I think you know I you know people in the past have talked about um you know if they can wear this jersey or that jersey because of copyright issues I feel like if anyone was gonna have it it would be uh, the District D5 but we did see a promo video of them walking into the arena with them uh, I believe it was for the last game, right? So, which is perfect. That is exactly what those jerseys should be. They should be a bit between the team and the fans. They, for the love of God, should never touch NHL ice. That is <laughs> such a bad, you know. I I just don't what would think be worse, those or the Golden Knights golden helmets? Oh God, those are. Those are bad. Did you know that uh, Silver Knights wear silver shiny helmets too? Well, I I didn't know that because <laughs> they're the Silver Knights, and that's a very funny name. But I did see the the jersey, uh, the helmets, the Kings wore for the out the outdoor game they played in Colorado last year. Yeah, and those look super stupid. Yeah, I don't know how you watch that game and we're like, oh, we're gonna do that, but more. Um, you know, Notre Dame apparently pulls off gold helmets. Like, what are we doing, guys? Yeah, but the I thing is, like, Notre Dame cool. also has, like, really nice jerseys, and, like, it it kind of works. Like, I, I don't know what's... I think it's, like, the, that gold on the Gold Knights jersey is, like, so mustardy that it just, like, that doesn't work. I think Notre Dame yeah. has, like, some, like, real dark navy blue jerseys, and they've got gold accents, and then they throw the gold helmets to kind of put it over the top. It's not like they look great, but, like, that combination of color is a little bit better, whereas with the Knights, you've got gold on gold on gold gloves with gold pants and gold socks and it's like holy it just it gets a lot yeah no it, it looks like uh <laughs> what do you call it, it looks like a, a vegas hotel threw up it's awful you know the other thing with notre dame i don't know how we got here other than i'm an idiot but like notre dame like has been doing that for football for years like that's that's a thing special to notre dame is these golden helmets Vegas just woke up and made a dumb decision. Like they just like, what if we just put something on our head that everybody hated? And it's like, yeah, sure, why not? So if you I think we're getting off topic, we're not because the Ducks do have a, a prospect that plays for Notre Dame, so it is on topic. Can't get mad at us for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on to the next question here. With a question from uh, Brett in on Twitter, he said, "While it might be best to actually be sellers for once, do you actually believe it will happen this year?" Um, I can't. I guess you really can't say the Volkov deal was um, selling off. It was more just. A, I mean, in, in one sense, it's buying because we did give up a pick to to bring him in. Uh, but it is it is basically just a, a hockey trade at this point. Do you want to explain to everybody, Eddie, now that you know no. how that pick works? What no. happened? I don't. I don't want to go down that road again. <laughs> to, okay, I have to now because it's it's out there to to give to give reference to what. Uh, what Steven is saying. I had I did not understand why they needed to include a conditional seventh round pick. I have no, I don't care about a seventh round pick. Uh, I think it's kind of pointless to throw it in there, but if a team wants it as a sweetener or whatever, throw it in there. It, it literally means nothing. And don't come at me that the Ducks found Andre Cash in the seventh round 
yes, it happens, but not enough that you have to worry about trading that pick away. Anyway, the the, the thing that got me was the condition. I, I did not know that the Ducks had already given out another conditional seventh. That meant that they might not have a 2023 seventh round pick. Uh, so I said, why not just give the 2023 seventh instead of having the condition in there? And it turns out there's apparently multiple conditional seventh yeah, round picks. It's a, because it, it's a sequence of conditional seventh round picks. What? I love it so much because of the Joel Person trade. I know, you know? but it's like, why? Why, why why are we dealing so many seventh round picks on conditions that now we have a conditional seventh round pick chain that one conditional seventh round pick could cause another one to become a conditional seventh round pick? Like just the, the gymnastics Whoa. around that is, is unbelievable. For for all so, for a seventh round pick. Yeah, and, and all for Joel Person, Ethan Bowen, and uh <laughs> Alexander Volkov. And it's a, it's a seventh-round pick three drafts from now. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome, man. I love NHL GMs. They're so dumb. It's so funny. Just all the different things they do to just try to make things make sense for them. And then they go to their owner and be like, oh, no, actually, I picked up a seventh-round pick for us. So, all right. So we got to answer the question. Are, are the Ducks actually going to be sellers at the deadline this year? Do you think it's actually going to happen? So... <laughs> I I kind of want to say yes. I, I I think there is a. Let me say this. I think there is a very good chance that Raquel and or Manson are not on this team once that deadline day ends. I I think that's a very real thing. I think they are both perfect from an asset perspective. Uh, as you know, dehumanizing as that may be, uh, they have an extra year. They don't make a ton of money as far as their cap hit, uh, and they can step seamlessly. Excuse me, so sorry. They can step seamlessly into anybody's roster. You can play Josh Manson on any pair with almost anybody, and he's gonna figure it out. Same thing with Ricard Raquel. You can put him with a defensive center and let him be the offensive guy. You can put him with an offensive center and let him be the trigger man. He can do it. So, you know, I, I do think there's a very good chance that one, if not both of those guys are on a new team. I think, but I don't I think he's the same way. I think in a, in a regular year, I'd feel more confident saying the Ducks are sellers and like are guaranteed going to be sellers this year just because of the amount of kind of talk there's been about, around the league of the Ducks being one of the the you know, mainly active teams and really one of the only uh, very active teams right now in terms of, you know, dangling some names out there and taking calls and, and listening on a lot of players. But I think with like so many factors this year with the flat cap and the expansion draft and everything like that, that goes into it this year. I, I just think finding the right offer is going to be hard. You know, obviously clearly there's been a few teams who've already backed out on Ricardo Raquel because the price is high. We know Calgary was one of those teams uh, but, you know, Toronto might end up being another. It's apparently rumored that the Islanders and the Flyers are also interested in Ricard Raquel, but the Ducks aren't coming down from their price, which if you're turning away teams like the Islanders who just lost their captain for the rest of the season are in desperate need of offense, what is what is the price, right? And and for me, it, it it's probably a young kind of A-level prospect. So, you know, if we're looking at Philly, it's like it's a guy like Cam York. If we're looking at the Islanders, it's probably a guy like Kiefer Bellows, right? And it's, I think a lot of teams are weighing, you know, the, the kind of the um, 
the options there on whether it's a good trade for them to move on from a guy like that. Cause it, it also probably includes, you know, a first round pick, if not more on top of that. Um, and then they have to take into consideration, can they protect Ricard Raquel? Are they going to lose him to the Seattle expansion mm-hmm. draft? And, you know, are they going to be able to fit him under the cap next year? Is the cap going to go up next year because of the pandemic? You know, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, interesting factors that go into, this year's trade deadline that in a normal year they wouldn't. And I think I'd be more confident saying the ducks would be sellers without all those factors involved. Yeah. I, I was uh, catching up on the one, the pod you and Jay did. And I, I think the thing for me that I thought was interesting was the Islanders one, because especially with the, the news now uh, that Anders Lee is down for the year, I don't see there's any reason for them to go out and be buyers. I think that would be stupid. And you know, Lou Lamorello is the GM. He's old and he ain't stupid. You know, uh, you can argue whether or not he should keep signing Matt Martin until the sun explodes. Uh, but you know, dudes, dudes won cups. He gets it. Um, You're not going to cheat him out I, of a deal. Like he's been around yeah, and done I everything. Just, yeah, I just don't see him committing to buying, given that Anders Lee, who was the second, third best offensive player on that team, isn't going to be around. Like I just, I, I don't see it. And the Philly thing I think is interesting because if anything, I would think Manson would be a better fit in Philly yeah. uh, than Raquel would. You know, I, I you know, one of the, just because I'm stupid and this is what I do, like, I was wondering what it would take to build a ghost for Manson trade. Um, it, it could be as simple as just a one for one with those yeah, guys. Yeah, I think there's, because I think, uh, what is it? I think Ghost makes like, just under half a mil more. Yep. So I think there would need to be some little, you know, cap maneuvering, you know, maybe add an ELC guy or something like that. Um, But I, I think he would be a really good fit there. I think when you look at Josh Manson, the type of role he plays, the way that he, you know, conducts himself for lack of a, you know, a better way to say it. He's a Philly dude, man. Like he's a big tough dude. And he is going to make you pay. And I really do think Philly, especially with Carter Hart having a bad year and him being young, bringing in someone, uh, bringing in someone like Manson to just clear it out in front of him, I think would be huge. Um, so I, I, I would be very curious to see if Philly would be interested in a Manson trade. That's the big one for me. Yeah, I think there's a few teams out there who kind of both Ricardo and Raquel and, and Josh Manson fit into. I think Toronto is probably one of those teams where mm-hmm. I think I think they might be actually the only team that's been linked to each of them at some point. You know, whether I think last year it was in in the uh, in the off season it was heavily linked to Josh Manson, and now Ricard Raquel has kind of been at the forefront of of Leafs rumors lately on, on different players that they're looking for. And you know what, what it comes down to at the end of the day is the Leafs are going to add somebody They're They're going to make a trade. They've already said they're willing to move, you know, draft picks and, and prospects to get it done. They feel that they're in a position to challenge for a Stanley cup this year, which I think most people would say they are. Um, and then at the end of the day, it's, are they willing to pay the price that the, the ducks want for Ricard Raquel, or are they going to go and get a cheaper option and hope that pans out just as well for them? I, I think the the Leafs think of themselves fairly similar to the Tampa Bay lightning. And they look at the types of deals that the lightning did over the last couple of years and how that got them over the edge. And, and I think they see that in Ricard Raquel and, and that ability to not only have him for this year, but for next year and, and being able to mm-hmm. have that kind of two pronged approach and the two-pronged run 
uh, at a Stanley Cup and potentially two Stanley Cups, you know, depending on how how this year goes for them. I'm sure Leafs fans would would love to hear me <laughs> hear me say that and and the, the chance of going back to back, but you know, you do have that uh, that option with Ricardo Raquel, so I'm not surprised that. Uh, the Leafs are kind of one of the the front runners for him when it when it comes down to the trade deadline. But uh, we we got to dig into some of the questions here because we are gonna we're gonna run pretty long here. Um, we had a question from Tony that kind of references the trade deadline. He said, "When it comes to the Ducks and the trade deadline, give us one thing that would shock you, bad or good. One thing that would upset you if it did or did not happen, and one thing that would be a pleasant surprise." So we'll we'll go through the first one here. What would be one thing that would shock you, good or bad, at the trade deadline? Uh, I think Henrik moving. Uh, I I would be shocked if he moves. I uh, I don't see a situation in which Anaheim can easily get him uh, onto another team. Um before the season's over. Uh, I think that is definitely um, an off-season move. Um, you know, he's played well, so I don't think it's it's necessarily a huge rush to kick his ass out the door. But I, I do think all of the reasons to move on from him earlier in the season still apply. Um, I, I think that would definitely shock me if it happened. And then on a smaller scale, like... I really would be very surprised if Getsy wasn't on this team at the end of the season. That was going to be mine and Jace, yeah. Jace Southern mentioned it in the chat. Yeah, like the big shock would be if Getzlaff is traded because I think for everybody you can make an argument, right? Like Lindholm would be a shock, but you can you can see it happening. And, you know, that's Bob Murray's decision at that point to move him. And I think that's the case with a lot of these guys. For for me, yeah, the most shocking one would be, would be Getzlaff because at that point, as Bob Murray has stated, it would be Getzlaff asking for that trade. And I think that would be the most shocking part of it is that he actually went out and asked for a trade out of Anaheim and, and to go to a competitive team or, or to challenge for a Stanley Cup. I think that would be kind of the, the most shocking thing on uh, on a bad end. I don't think there's too many shocking good ends, you know, good trades that you could get here. I mean, maybe getting more than we thought we would get from Ricardo Raquel, but it's always hard to get more than you expected for a player. Usually you come out on the opposite end where you're getting less than what you expected for a guy. So uh, if the Ducks can get out of the deadline without any shocking moves, I think that's probably a win for them. Uh, and if we're, we're, we look more to, to hopefully the, the returns that we expect from a lot of these. Um, second part of that question was one thing that would upset you if it did or did not happen. I, I think I lean to the, the did not happen side of things. And if the Ducks didn't move one of those those big core pieces that, mm-hmm. that Bob Murray's been talking about how disappointing they've been. That that would be probably the most disappointing thing for me if that didn't happen, whether that's a Raquel or a Henrik or a Silverberg or, you know, uh, a Josh Manson, some somebody like that. I think they, they've got to have one of those trades. We've had kind of minor, uh, minor big trades. It makes zero sense, but, you know, Andre Kasha, Nick Ritchie, Brandon Montu over the last couple of years where we've moved out a, you know, a, a decent, uh, a decent piece of, of the main roster. Uh, I think this year you got to go for that big trade and move one of these guys that are some of the bigger names here. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, I think you got to move. Uh, what do you call it? I mean, you got to move Ben Hutton just 
you know, the same thing as you did with Delgado two years ago, right? Just get a seventh, call it a day and move on. Um, you know, but I, I think the one that I would be shocked if it didn't happen was, unfortunately, I do think Hyman's time in Anaheim is up. Uh, and it's a bummer because I really like him. I really think he can be a contributing member on a good team. And for one reason or another, he hasn't seemed to be able to keep his spot in the lineup. Um, and so I, I would be very shocked if he was on this team at the end of the year because I do think he's a prime candidate to go for a second and a nobody, you know, a third and a nobody. Or a conditional seventh-round pick. <laughs> yeah, you and Dave are really excited about those. He's got to start collecting them because at some point we're going to need to trade another one, and we're going to we need to keep the chain going. So here's the thing I wanted. Like I said, I was listening to a pod at you and Jay, and one of the things that I thought the two things I thought you guys said that was interesting and I disagreed with is one: I do think I think you guys are right that moving Gibby is probably a uh, an off season move, but I don't think the expansion draft is a concern because you're probably getting somebody back, yep. right? You're probably taking back Dubnik or uh, not Grubauer, but like Barube. Yeah, like when we looked at like Buffalo, that. we threw Carter Huttons in the mix. Carter yeah. Hutton, exactly. And and so I do think, you know, you bring that guy in, you sign him to a one-year, $1 million deal or something like that, and, and you call it a day, and you think you probably still have your guy. I do think it's highly unlikely that he gets moved in season. I think it makes more sense for Colorado to give themselves another shot and see where they're at. Um, but I don't think it's prohibitive to do it in season. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing about picks that I thought was important to mention is it is always worth remembering you can take a bunch of picks and package them for either decent players or better picks. There are always going to be teams that you can take two thirds and a fifth and get another second round pick. And and I don't think, uh, you know, for anybody who watches basketball, uh, you can see, you know, I think uh, over the next, like, it's like seven years, Oklahoma City has 17 firsts yeah. and 17 seconds. And you can definitely get to a point of diminishing returns where they know what you have. And so they're going to make you overpay because you don't have any leverage. Yeah. And and at some point those picks like you well, said they, yeah. they become they become more than just picks, they become trade value down the road. Like at some point you right. know that, you, yeah, your opportunity. Yeah, like at some point you know that hey, you're not going to use all of these, but in you know when you want to do you want to make the opposite, if you want to become a buyer, you then have this currency to work with that a lot of sellers are looking for and you know normally I'd be okay with that. I think I'd be fine with that if it was anybody but Bob Murray behind the you know the the bench right now or behind the <laughs> behind the scenes kind of pulling the strings right is that the Ducks don't really trade up that often in the draft they do have a history of doing it and some success some success doing it but I you know the the one quote that always sticks out in my mind now is from uh, the director of scouting for the Kings I can't remember his name but last year at the draft he talked about uh, how you know, valiantly the, the Kings tried to trade into the first round and teams just are not budging. You know, teams just don't really di- you know have those discussions anymore of moving out of the first round. They're all kind of afraid to drop into the second and third round to do so. And trying to get that extra pick on draft day is so hard. And, and Bob Murray just doesn't strike me as the type of general manager to go out and say, 
trade Ricard Raquel, get a bunch of picks, and then flip those picks before he gets to the draft for another pick or for you know a prospect or a player that he's interested in or whatever. Um, so like the 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 logic behind that is perfect. You know, bringing in more picks and being able to use those in different deals and kind of thinking three steps ahead. But that's just not not who Bob Murray is, right? I don't have the the, the confidence in that and. And and I think I do I do stick to my point in some sense that you know I think at some point you you know whether you're going to use these picks in in other trades or not I think you do start need, needing to bring in pieces uh, that are that mm-hmm. are closer to being uh, NHL ready especially when you've got you know your two key kind of future pieces here in Zegers and Drysdale playing and they're going to take you know quicker strides hopefully than some of the kids that we've seen so far jump into the lineup that. You know, next year there'll be a big step forward. The year after that, you know, another big step forward, and we're starting to see kind of full potential being reached at that point. And hopefully, with Zegers, that's a close to point per game producing forward, and for Drysdale, that is, you know, a a top you know two or three defenseman. And and we start to see that shaping out. You're gonna want those <laughs> those twenty one. Sorry, no, I, I'll don't keep going. I'll say it in a minute. I just yeah, you don't you don't think uh, is am I too optimistic there? No. No, no, no. I think the thing that you said of Zegers is funny about him being a, a, a hopefully being a point per game player because I, I think that's one hundred percent accurate. I don't think that's wrong, and I think that's what we're hoping for. But I think it's funny if you'd have said, you know, five years ago that the Ducks were going to hope that someone was going to be a point per game player. You're going to be like, dude, we barely have one of those now. Yeah. Most guys don't hit. The problem we have is we don't have a sixty point player, uh, and now you know we are starting to see offense kind of come back up so now you know having having a superstar be a 90 point player in a normal season isn't out of the question and i i do think it's just very funny to think about in so much as how the game has evolved over the last couple of years and while you know scoring hasn't gone up to the levels that it has been in the past i I do think we are making some progress in that and i think the uh what's the points award uh, Art Ross. Art Ross, thank you. Uh, and I think the Art Ross race now proves that, right? There's not going to be. This is for Pat. Uh, there's not going to be another Jamie Ben, yeah. you know, twenty-five point Art Ross season. Uh, that's just not not going to happen. Um, so it, it's very exciting that we can kind of hope that uh, he becomes an 80, 90 point player. That would be really great. I, I'm, I'm, know, I would lose my mind. If I'm done that. being jealous of other players on other teams and watching them be like, man, what it would it be like to have a guy like that? And and it's a lot of other teams that you look at, like, you know, look at Florida, like what would it be like to have a Barkov and not, a, not just a Barkov, but a Barkov and a Huberto or, you know, Toronto with an Austin Matthews or a Mitch Marner and a McKinnon and, you know, McDavid and Dreisaitl and, you know the the list goes on of of some of the the, the top teams out there and and the talent they have and you know even yeah. even some of the lower down teams and and you look at the Senators and having Tim Stutzel and you know the emergence of Drake Batherson and, and Thomas Shabbat. That's I'm not sitting here saying the Ducks don't have you know fun players and 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 players that are trading no, 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 in the right it's direction. A very, it's a very different thing. I don't think anything you're saying is wrong. I don't think it's it's you know I, I this isn't you know one of our depression episodes. I just think. <laughs> You're, what you're saying is right, is that we have gotten to a point now where high-end producers offensively are hitting a different level again than maybe they were in the past. And it's it's nice to look at 
uh, a guy like Zegers, he's like, yo, he's got a good shot at being one of those guys. Yeah. And, I, you know, we haven't had that feeling in a while. It was always, what are we going to get from the big three? Is, you know, is this going to be the year that Silverberg hits 30 and Cogliano hits 15? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just such a different situation. And I think these are the kinds of things that when your team sucks, you need to appreciate. And uh, I, it's just nice, you know? It's nice to see Jamie Treesdale out there just being better than other yeah. people and to do it offensively. It's just fun. just with some flair, right? Some modern, some yeah, exactly. some modern NHL players. I think is is the big thing, right? Like you you watch just some of the exciting plays, like Austin Matthews on the game winning goal for Toronto last night. And and listen, I know Austin Matthews is a generational talent, but still, there's there's plenty of other examples around the league. But you know, he toe drags a defender, walks out in front, pulls it to to his forehand, just misses, gets the puck behind the net. Puck bounces around the boards, and, and three sense players break out. This is an overtime three-on-three. Three. He jumps up, swats it down from midair, brings it brings it into his own blue line, and then pulls that move. And then the puck ends up going to Justin Hall and the, and the Leafs score. But just just like the the flair and the, and the excitement in it is like what gets you excited for guys like Jamie Drysdale uh, and, and Trevor Zegers. We, we got to wrap up here because we're getting um, pretty late. But I do want to get to this last question here from Jay Southern because it, it is on topic and – it's one I, I do really want to talk about here. Um, he said, is our seemingly slow lack of prospect development a system issue or a fan over-evaluation issue? This is such a great question because I think there, there's so much, I don't know if I want to say drama, but criticism of how slowly guys like Sam Steele and Troy Terry and, and Maxime Comtois and, and Max Jones as well, how slowly they've developed into you know, actually game changing talent. And, and I think it's a bit of a, a bit of both here. I think you, you have to kind of taper your expectations of what you thought these guys were. We're so heavily invested in our own prospects. You forget how many other teams are going through the same thing right now with their guys. Right. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. team on my mind right now is, is the Islanders with Kiefer Bellows and Oliver Wallstrom. You know, they're just starting to come into their own, uh, with the Islanders, but they're drafted around the same time as, as some of these guys were, as some of the Ducks players mm-hmm. that we're talking about and, and had a slow development path here. And they were taken higher up than some of the Ducks prospects are. And there's plenty of guys who were taken, you know, top 15, top 20 that have come nowhere close to what teams expected they'd be at at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that, you know, the Ducks do have four of those young players that they drafted that are playing in the NHL right now and, you know, Sam Steele is struggling, but I think you can comfortably say the other three in Jones, Comtois, and Terry look like everyday NHL players. Oh, those are the other three? Those are the other three. Okay. Okay. Well, we're fine. Am I I missing? Who am I missing? Oh, Isaac Lindstrom. I'm missing Isaac Lindstrom. Oh, yeah. yeah, The guy who might be the best young player on the team. Yeah. You know what? You have to to throw him that list. I think we're so used to grouping those four together that Isaac Lindstrom has just kind of popped up. And you, you have <laughs> you got to throw them into that question, that that equation too, right? Is like you've got you know four guys that look like everyday NHL players. Sam Steele is getting pretty close to doing so. That's a you know success in itself that you've got these guys playing in the NHL and and looking like NHL players. Yeah, the team isn't that great, but it's because these aren't the type of prospects that are going to carry the load for you. They're nice pieces when you do have right. you know Trevor Zegers and Jamie Drysdale and a few other big pieces to go along with that. 
But, you know, you I don't think it's slow prospect development or anything like that. I don't think that's on the Ducks organizationally. I think I think they should almost be applauded for getting these guys to a point where they are everyday NHL contributors. And then once you build a good team around them, they're going to be good. Like, I think most of us can say you put Troy Terry in, in a top team in the NHL and play him on a good line, he's going to look great because he does have the skills to get it done. I think you can say the same thing for Maxim Comtois and Max Jones. But to ask these guys to do it all themselves is where we kind of step over the line a little bit and get a bit past what we should be expecting from them. None of these guys are going to do it themselves. And Maxim Comtois has given it you know, one hell of a shot. Uh, and he had a great start right. to the year. But even that's catching up to him now where – He's not the type of guy who's going to do it on his own. No, and those guys are so rare. Um, you, you know, those guys, it's just those guys are rare. You know, we know goal scoring is streaky, and we know that's going to be his thing, right? That's that's going to be the thing for him is he's going to be producing offensively. And so that's just by nature streaky, especially – you know, when the team around it isn't built to support those types of talents. Um, as far as is it a management thing, is it a fan thing? I think it's a little bit of both. And I think the other thing to remember is the context in which these players were taken. These players were taken at a point in which we could see Anaheim's core starting to age out of their window. So every time you see a first round pick, you're well, shit, this guy might be able to come in and help. And that guy might be able to come in and help. You know, and everybody's the best. You know, it's like the first day of school. Everybody's the best version of the draft. And so what you're hearing are all these comparisons to guys, and you're like, well, shit, Doc's roster in a third-line role, that would be huge. And so now what you do is you're like, oh, Sam Steele, potential elite uh, second-line center wow, well, if he came in and he's actually our third line center because we still have Getsy, you know, and, and what yeah. you do is you start working yourself up a little bit. And I think one of the things that we need to recognize is that we were spoiled that this team was so competitive for so long. It was great. And because of that, we got late round picks. And the difference between late round picks and early round picks is usually NHL readiness in a lot of ways. So we were going to be waiting on this guy anyways. But we also were watching a team that desperately needed young reinforcement. And there was a level of wishfulness and, and, and optimism, if not flat out romanticism, uh, that we attached to these young players and picks so that, uh, you know, we, we thought we had more going forward. And I think what we're seeing now is like you said, and we've said all year, we're seeing these guys develop into players that can fill roles that need to be filled. But seeing Dreesdale and Zegris highlights exactly what level these guys aren't. Yeah. And so now it's about bringing those guys in. Yeah, and, and the problem with expectations and comparisons is they're always on the high end, right? Sam Steele coming in was compared yep. to Braided Point. And then all of a sudden, like you said, fans start thinking, and, and you know, for the only reason other than these guys are being compared to them, that, oh, imagine if we had Braided Point. Sam Steele's going to be the next Braided Point. And he comes right. in and you know, it's hard to live up to those expectations, right? It, you know, Braden Point is one of the best players in this league. Uh, and, you know, does Sam Steele have some characteristic, characteristics of Braden Point? Sure. I think he plays a similar game. But, he, yeah, he's not at that level. 
and and you can't hold that to the standard and say, oh, well, he didn't get to that level, so he's got slow development. And I think he's going to become a victim of of that uh, same kind of hype syndrome that Nick Ritchie fell under. Yeah. That you know, Nick Ritchie was a top ten pick, and that kind of haunted him for a while. I think Sam Steele's uh, CHL Player of the Year season is going to be one that that haunts him uh, as long as he's with the Ducks for a while until he fulfills the lofty expectations that a lot of us had for him after that season. You know, a lot of things went well for him in that season. You have to remember he had so many points because he didn't go to the World Juniors like a lot of people expected him to. He was on a very good team. He was the kind of go-to guy in that year, and he just had an excellent year. And um, you know, after he had that season, the hype for him skyrocketed, and everybody thought he's going to be you know, the future second-line center, he could be a 60-point player. I remember those discussions about how Sam Steele could be a 60-point player. He's just got to figure out his defensive side of the game. And it hasn't panned out for him. That doesn't mean he's not a good player. And then you look at, mm -hmm. you know, <clears throat> Troy Terry and uh, Maxim Comtois and Max Jones. You know, Maxim Comtois is a second-round pick. And I think, you know, for what he's done so far, that's more than you can ask from, you know, most of the second-round picks you get. Look at mm -hmm. Antoine Morant. We just gave up a second-round pick right there who couldn't cut it in the in the in the uh, AHL. Maxim Comtois taken in the same draft a few picks ahead of Antoine Moran is an everyday NHL player. So when you start, you know, I don't think anybody's criticizing Maxim Comtois here, but when you talk about slow development, I think that's very quick development on Maxim Comtois' part because we're looking at the complete opposite end of the spectrum here with how Antoine Moran panned out. And you know, Troy Terry's what a fifth round pick. And and mm -hmm. and the fact that he's even made it to the NHL, I think he doesn't get enough credit for when we're talking about trading him and oh he's not that good or whatever. We all lauded the fact that Andre Kasha was a late round late round pick, and the weird how that happens, and the huh? the production didn't come, and even when the production wasn't there, and and he was a streaky player and had to deal with injuries, it was still all the potentials there, and you know it doesn't matter what he really becomes because. You know, he was a seventh-round pick, so it, it doesn't matter. But, you know, Troy Terry doesn't get that same grace for some reason because the team is so bad. Andre Kasha was coming into a very good team and just was a nice complimentary piece to what the Ducks already had. Uh, and, and then, you, mm -hmm. you know, Max Jones, a late first-round pick, and has become a very valuable piece and, and kind of a unique player on this team. And I think he's kind of fulfilling what you expected you'd get from him at this point in his career. But because these are, you know, the main pieces for the Ducks right now, we hold them in such high expectations that we need them because we need them to be better than they really are right now for the Ducks to be mm -hmm. a good team. And I think that's the, such a tough thing for these kids to come up in this organization because then you do get that over kind of, you know, fan val evaluation here where we're, we're starting to get in our heads of what we thought these guys could be on the very high end and it's affecting our our opinions and our evaluation of them, of who they are now, what type of players they actually are. Yeah, no, exactly. I, Sam's still such an interesting one. I, I do think he has, at this point in his career, he has all of the makings of a change of scenery guy. Um, I really do think there's an outside shot that he moves teams and you know, he's able to kind of get away from some of this hype and stuff like that. Uh, but especially with Troy Terry, I think the point where you contrast Troy Terry and Kasha is perfect uh, because everything with Kasha was like, oh, well, look at this, and they got him late. Got it. It's all true, all of it. But Troy Terry is, oh, he's not this. You know what the difference between those two dudes is? Troy Terry went to the Olympics in a year when the NHL players didn't go. Yep. So Troy Terry got to go to, was it Korea? Yep. Uh, was where the Olympics were? Yeah. 
and he got to have his TJ Oshi moment. He became somewhat of a a you know a household name, and so he came in with a level of expectation, uh, like he was a first round of pick. expectation. Yeah, and and you know, it's great. I'm happy that he got to do all those things, but there is the the downside of it, which is now all of the fans who maybe aren't just because it's hard. You know what I mean? You're not up to date on what all of these guys are. You're not up to date on what all of their ceilings are. You know, it's it's hard because we just like I don't watch, you know, the University of Denver play college hockey. Like I'm just not doing it. So it's hard for me to know other than what I hear sometimes about what Troy Terry is expected to be. And we're like, oh, but he's this and he did this and he's got all those little things like uh, he plays center, but then he's moved to wing for his teammates and all this kind of stuff. And he became a leader. You've got all these wonderful things that we're hearing. So in our heads, we're going, great, he's the next guy. Well, he was a fifth round pick. Yeah. For whatever reason, that's where he went. And if he outperforms that, great. But if he doesn't, that's not an indictment of him. That is the reality of drafting fifth round picks. Yeah. Those guys don't always hit. They, they I mean, they and rarely more often, hit. More often than not, they don't. I, I think, yeah, I, I you yeah, know, exactly. honestly, I think another guy who's going to become a victim of that um, is Artyom Gal- Galimov that the Ducks have right now because if you're, 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 you're victim almost to your your highest highs at that point. I think Troy Terry, what you know, was was the victim of that is had some very you know bright moments at Denver that were standout moments, and then the World Juniors where he was the shootout king, and then goes to the Olympics and. You know, he had all these highs that you don't really expect from a fifth-round pick and got a lot of attention, did a lot of great things, but the hype just went through the roof, and then the expectations of him coming in were like he was a first-round pick, and he got that treatment of basically a guy like Trevor Zegers was getting, that he was going to step in the lineup and be this uh, immediate impact player, and he, you know, if take a, you know, another fifth-round pick and, and throw them in right now and see what the expectations were for a, a recent Ducks fifth round pick to have an impact as, as early as Troy Terry is. It, it's nowhere near the same level. And, and you know, the, the, I get that sense with Gallimov from a lot of people right now is, you know, he's got the, the whole thing that he was like the first Russian in a long time taken by Bob mm-hmm. Murray. He's got a lot of highlight real plays this year. He won KHL goal of the month. He's up for KHL goal of the year. Uh, he had like a, a two or three week stretch where he would just put out highlight real play after highlight real play. And then all of a sudden hype starts building up and up and, you know, okay. You know, Kirill Kaprizov this year comes over from obscurity and it becomes, you know, a superstar for the wild. And we have the Artemi Panarin story already in the league and the Evgeny Kuznetsov story. And then all this stuff is just kind of building up where the hype builds up for him. But then you go and you look at the sum of the whole this year, he had a worse season in the KHL than he did in his rookie year. And, you know, he's been very streaky and and, and played in kind of a, a second or third line role for the team and really couldn't nail down a first line role when he was given the opportunity. Uh, you know, he's not one of his team's top scorers. He struggled to score in the playoffs. And, and then all of a sudden you take all those parts together. But the only part a lot of people see are those very high highs, right? Those those positive things. You know, we're on Twitter. We're We're the same, you know, content producers as a lot of people out there. We love to put out the highlight real plays and, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the fun things to watch and everything like that. Uh, and like Brett said, the issue is we only see the highlights. You don't see the lowlights. Mm-hmm. You don't often see the the summation of, of their season and, and kind of how uh, everything comes into play. 
And and I think you know prospects become major victims of that, especially when their prospects coming into um, teams that aren't that great right now, and and kind of have to be asked to carry more of a load than they're expected. I think you you plug and place these guy all these guys in, in some very good teams across the league, and they look like very good complementary pieces to an already good team, and they would be in Anaheim if the Ducks were a competitive team and, and had a, a you know a very good roster. Uh, surrounding them, so I, I, you know, I hope that's not the case for for Artem Galimov. He, he just reminds me a bit of of kind of the similar sense that Troy Terry went through, and and how the hype kind of went through the roof here. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, I think uh, I think you and uh, Jay hit it on the head the other night too. The other thing is, you know, with the Volkov trade, like I, I do think, and you said it tonight, like there is a level of desperation's a little bit of a strong word, but I, I think it works because fans are like dramatic. Uh, but there is a little the lo- level of desperation that does come with some of these things. And that's why we like those gifts. You know, I think if you ask any of us, like, honestly, like, oh, do you think this dude's going to come over to the NHL and do this? It's like, dude, he's not even doing this that much in the KHL, which is why we all know the handful of gifts we're talking about. Um, you know, and so it, it just is, you know, a very nice little thing uh, to have, right? It's those little moments of optimism to kind of help get you through a season, um, which is fine. I think it's important as fans, you know, and then when they come over, you've got to try and ground yourself a little bit and remember the odds of these prospects and how many players there are in the NHL and how many players get drafted every year. And sometimes guys just get lost in the shuffle. It just happens. Yeah. And, and listen, there, there, there's, we're not saying you can't get excited about a guy. No, absolutely not. It's, it's just, you know, it's fine to have that excitement and, and have the hype build up. There just has to be a level of expectation that when they do get here, that, you know, a realization that that was the highlights, that there are other things to their mm-hmm. game and and things could go wrong, right? I mean, you know, knock on wood, but, you know, Trevor Zegras has the highlights, and there's a lot of them, and he's clearly an exceptional talent. But there's nothing to say that, you know, maybe it doesn't work out for him the, the way we think it is, right? And and even for those high-end, you know, players in the Duck system that are almost kind of, you know, locks to be superstars, there has to be those tempered expectations as well. And when you think, okay, we're tempering expectations with Zegers and Drysdale, then you also kind of got to go and extend that to guys like Troy Terry and Max Jones and start realizing that, you know, where they're at right now is pretty good considering, you know, a lot of guys who are Mm -hmm. drafted around there don't make it there. Um, and, and, you know, again, the, I'll go back to it, but the perfect comparison for me right now is uh, just because how relevant it is, is Maxime Comtois versus Antoine Morin. You know, taken in the same draft, both second round picks, the same age. Look where one is, look where the other is. And look at the production mm-hmm. one has in the NHL and the one hasn't and, and barely kind of struggled to get things going in the American Hockey League, right? Um, so it, it it's just, you know, it's just the way things develop sometimes. And the fact that Troy Terry's a fifth round pick is... Uh, you know, pretty close to being a guaranteed top nine player around the league. That's exciting. Max Jones being a, a you know, a Swiss army knife for this Ducks team. That's exciting. Sam Steele being a capable NHL center. You know, that that's, that's exciting as well. Uh, I think you, you, you got to be excited with the fact that a lot of these guys have just made it to the NHL and become capable NHL players. 
Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. All right, we 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 gotta wrap because we're almost we're pushing <laughs> two hours, and that's not me. I came in the show uh, late, so and I like to talk, so we pushed it out here. But uh, every, I mean, the fact that you guys, a lot of you, have stuck out really from the beginning here, all the way to uh, you know an hour and forty five minutes here. Uh, you know, really, we really appreciate, appreciate everybody, it. Uh, we realized this show was was a bit unorthodox. Uh, again, big big props to Stephen for carrying the show solo for about forty five minutes. There, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, so uh, you know, we really appreciate uh, him pulling uh, pulling out the stops here to to get this one out. <laughs> Last thing we want to do for you guys is is have to cancel another show. Um, so when we can get things out there, uh, you know, we we'd love to to be live and talk with you guys and chat with you about. Uh, but the ducks and everything going on. So a lot of fun having you guys out here uh, for our Patreon members. We have a couple of new ones in Mackenzie and Mark, you know, welcome to the team. We are planning on a pucks and Bruce show this weekend, just working on, on timing, whether that's going to be Saturday and Sunday and kind of who's going to be on the show. Uh, I know um, a lot of us have kind of plans this weekend, so we're going to have one for sure. Uh, just kind of ironing out the details on uh, on kind of the date and time for that show, but uh, we need to put one out. We've been lacking a little bit uh, with our with our Patreon content for the month of March, and we owe you guys uh, a fun pucks and brews and, and a summary to some of the some of the stuff we started on Patreon back in uh, in February. So we'll be getting that out. But uh, welcome to uh, to the new Patreon members as well, and uh, we'll be back. What is it? Back to back games this weekend, Saturday. Saturday, Sunday, or is it Sunday, Monday that we have games? I think it's Sunday, Monday. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, actually, I believe it's Sunday, Monday. Blues, Blues Avalanche, I think, is uh, the Sunday, Monday stretch. Uh, a bit of a different back-to-back than we're used to. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll be back, like every back-to-back, for the Monday show, covering both games. Uh, just no point in doing a, a Sunday and Monday night show, but uh, we'll be we'll be covering that series. Uh, if you want to call it that, with the, the split against those two teams, hopefully a couple good games. Hopefully Jamie Drysdale is okay. I'm sure you covered that on the show, but uh, you know him going down uh, with an injury, not coming back in this game. Hopefully we see him back for this one. Uh, but again, I, I'm rambling here, but I appreciate you guys. Uh, oh, appreciate you guys coming out and and uh, hanging with us tonight. And we'll see you all come uh, Monday night. Take care, guys. Bye, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>